Welcome to the History of European Theatre podcast and thanks for joining me on this journey through millennia of theatrical history. Today we have part two of my attempt to guide theatre maker and podcast host Aaron Odom through the delights of the British Christmas pantomime. Part one of our conversation was released a week ago on Christmas Eve, so if you missed that you should pause now and go back to it. We'll still be here when you've caught up. And for those of you still with me, a quick reminder of where we are. So far, we'd found something out about Aaron, his theatre work, and his Euripides Eumenides podcast. Then I described the setup for the modern British Christmas pantomime, or as we know it in the UK, the Panto, with its many performances during the Christmas period. We then spoke about the eight traditional Pantos and some more recent additions, including Peter Pan, and then about the pantomime dame and the principal boy. Many of the traditions associated with pantomime originate in the Victorian period, and there is a significant crossover with the most popular form of Victorian entertainment, the music hall, with many of its stars appearing in pantomime. As part one finished, Erin was describing the strenuous nature of physical comedy he experienced when performing in a Commedia dell'arte piece, a story that prefigures the upcoming deeper dive into the history of pantomime. So, let's go back a bit. With all this Victoriano, I've got a bit ahead of myself. So, in pantomime, we've got familiar traditional stories, all well known to everybody in the audiences, updated a little for their time, and, and the vibe is definitely comic entertainment, physical comedy, singing, dancing, and verbal comedy. Mm -hmm. The stories might be well known, but the script is different for each production. And today, local theatres will often have their own script that they adapt every time the play comes around. So that's about every eight years if they stick to the core ones only. So the, the updates would be to keep it topical and to cater for the stars that are in the leading roles. So they'll adapt it for whoever their, their leading man or lady is in that season. The modern panto will often have a well-known comic or a soap actor, maybe a well-known singer or the latest reject from a reality show on television, someone who's, you know, in the zeitgeist or maybe was, was in the zeitgeist a year or two ago, depending on the budget that they've got to play with. Right. Uh, um, <laughs> I mean, a, na a really big named star can, can earn a really decent salary compared with the norms for a, a jobbing actor. Well, gosh, you, you think of just... You think of just the scale of that. You were saying 73 performances over like a month and a half. Uh, that's a lot of seats to fill. And that's a lot of ticket money coming in. Oh, man, of, co of course they're pulling in hand over fist money. That's awesome. There was reports in the newspapers I found from a few years ago that were talking about salaries as high as £200,000 for a season. Oh, for, for, for the, for if you were six you know, weeks? Like, a, like a soap opera oh. star sort of level. Um, someone really popular seems a lot to me and i'm oh. sure you know the people who are the actors in the cast are are not uh, getting anything like that i can't uh i i can't uh, define it specifically but i remember in my studies somewhere learning that when dustin hoffman played willie loman in death of a salesman on broadway which is i think it's also the production that has john malkovich as biff right um yeah. uh I think in 1984, I think I'm going to say, I think that's when that was, he was making $80,000 a week. Yeah. That's... <laughs> that's quite a contract. That's a contract. <laughs> Beginning to understand why my theater seats are so expensive these days. Uh, yes, exactly. Yeah. My, 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 my boys and I and Andrea, the woman who walks beside me, I really want to get them to Broadway this year to go see the revival of Sweeney Todd with Josh Groban and Anna Lee Ashford. And they just announced that Gaden Matarazzo from uh, Stranger Things fame, he, oh, yeah. he played Dustin. He's going to be Tobias. And I just went, oh, my God, I got to go see this show. <laughs> Some things you got to do. <laughs> right, right. Price be damned. I, I should qualify that that number with this was coming out of some of our tabloid newspapers from a few years ago. So I'm quoting them. I'm not saying that is what those people got paid. Uh, That's what the newspapers were saying they got paid. Probably I right, wouldn't, but, you know, you got to I take wouldn't be surprised if it's close. Yeah. yeah, I wouldn't be surprised if it's close. So although the same panto is not put on for two years running, the characters in each one are pretty similar. Uh, and we have, in fact, I think what we call stock characters. And you know where those come from, don't you? Oh, yes. Yes, I do. As far back as Greek comedy, then to Roman mm -hmm. comedy, all that Menander and Plautus and Terence. But oh the British God. pantomime 
I think you can argue is direct, not directly to, related to either of those. But if you follow Roman comedy, jump over the medieval, you get to Commedia dell'arte. Yes. And that is, I think, the furthest you could draw back from. Oh, I would. Uh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, when people ask me about Commedia dell'arte, I'm like, well, do you like Looney Tunes? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. And said, well, you're never going to see Elmer Fudd be a deep, sensitive, thoughtful person. You're never going to see uh, Bugs Bunny like down on his luck or, uh, you know, sometimes in the early days, somebody would actually get the better of him or something like that. But he was always witty and always, he was always taking people down and everything like that. These are the stock yeah. characters. Uh, yeah. So absolutely. I'm sure everybody listening knows this, but just to recap. So that's Italian Renaissance, 16th century, dancing, tumbling, acrobatics, mime, music, uh, familiar themes and comic stories retold over and over again stock characters it, it's really similar to pantomime mm -hmm. and and oh i was gonna say one of the elements of commedia that i love that not a lot of people realize is it was spoken in a language uh that is commonly known as gramalot and it be, but it was because they were traveling so they'd be crossing borders and they would be in different places that were speaking different languages and so they came up with this like gibberish language called gramalot that People could listen and they go, oh, I kind of get the gist of what they're saying. You know, um, I think one of the better scenes that I've ever seen was uh, a, a man trying to fall asleep, but there's a, a, a fly in his bedroom just buzzing around and keeping him awake. And I mean, Philip, the scene went on for like six minutes. <laughs> and every now and then he'd start snoring and, you know, just big. <laughs> and then you know, he would get silent but he'd be the sound of the fly as well and the fly is and he'd stand up and he's like hey and it was just absolute gibberish uh, uh i think in modern times probably one of the best people you can think of who was who could do that was sid caesar uh -huh, yeah um you know, I, I mean, just amazing with like, you know, I it sounds like he's speaking French, but I don't know French, so it could just be completely. Yeah. Yeah. As you say, that connection um, through that, the, through to things like cartoons. I mean, you can absolutely see it in that that idea, can't you? Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. And and mm -hmm. in relevant to pantomime, the, the character of Arachino, Harlequin, is a really important one. He's the crafty yes. manservant who is also a great acrobat and a trickster and he, uh, I think most people know he wears this patchwork um, costume, which is very recognisable as kind of the symbol of com Comedia. Uh, he became really popular mm -hmm. in England alongside the the other characters, so Scaramouche, Pantaloon, Piero, Punch, Columbine as a love interest. Mm -hmm. And in England, those characters were used in comic skits and singing and dancing, originally uh, Italian troops, but then English troops took over um, from the Italians. So in the early 18th century, they began to appear on the London stage in early pantomimes, which were based on classical stories set to music. But of course, at that point, mm. still performed in mime. Right. So the original Italian troops that came to London were mime troops. Huh. Uh, and that got carried on. Uh, now, that was probably because of the language barrier in the first case and, and mime always was a part of comedia even in italy and france but that got picked up by one british actor in particular a guy called john rich okay in fact john rich lived up to his name because he was so popular and he became so rich <laughs> that in 1732 he built the covent garden theater off the profits of his comedia performance what oh my word so that theater it was built like in an opera house style built on bow streets uh, right not right on covent garden in london and that's where the current drury lane theater currently sits mm -hmm. it's that side in fact it was it was so thought outrageous at the time uh hogarth the cartoonist uh, did a drawing of it and called it rich's glory yeah uh, in a rather oh you know, my god uh, demeaning way as as he had ah <sighs> Unfortunately, the, the theatre, after Rich died, the theatre was uh, remodelled and then there was a big fire there in 1808, um, which prompted the building of the current theatre that's sitting on that site. Oh, of course. And yeah. I think we, yeah, yeah, yeah. we probably both <laughs> should do episodes on theatre fires because they have such a big influence on the history of theatre. Well, yeah, I, I just did that episode uh, a little while ago. 
uh, on the Peacock Theater and the and the the funny dolphin ghosts in the Peacock Theater. But uh, on the site of that, yeah, you know, was were uh, like just in the location were several things uh, that were significant to th- uh, theater history. But <laughs> one of them being that this big grand building that was supposed to be a new jewel in the crown of the British theater burned to the ground. I mean, yeah. it, <laughs> it happened a lot. Yeah, there's actually uh, actually more more in America, I think, than in England. Oh my uh, word! But uh, there's actually kind of a funny story in Sheridan Theater. We have a very small uh, community theater, 88 seats, but it is built into the carriage house of this classic old mansion that belonged to uh, a, a senator and, and cattle rancher and everything. Um, and this group just found this space and they went, we could make this cute little intimate theater that is just for ours, uh, just for us. So uh, I think it was 1982, 83. Uh, there was a play that involves some smoking and you can kind of probably imagine where I'm going here. Uh, but yeah, somebody like flicked their ashes and uh, landed on a curtain in the middle of a performance. And uh, the whole whole stage got consumed. <laughs> The building's fine and everything, but yeah, it took a couple of years for them to actually refurbish and get everything back to normal. Oh, that was <laughs> that was some theatrical experience for those involved, wasn't it? And and we had some great reminders thereafter to never use open flame on the stage Absolutely. of the carriage house. It <laughs> wasn't really a thing anywhere else. They said never open flame in the carriage house. So it was really fortunate for everybody when... Uh, uh, e-cigarettes started to become a thing so you could just you know you could make it look you could put one in a pipe and you could make it look like you're actually smoking the pipe yeah anyway <laughs> so john richard created this particular style of comedy which he lent heavily on commedia dell'arte and it was really popular mime acrobatics slapstick traditional stories as i said it was so popular that that really dominated the style for the next hundred years or so. I've even seen a claim that he introduced, invented the slapstick. Oh, no kidding. Uh, I I think I'm not sure that's right, because I'm sure I've read about it in the Itali- original Italian plays as well, unless they borrowed it back from him somehow. But it, it is claimed that it's actually an English invention. Well, you know, now that I think about that, you know, it, the modern slapstick is like just a couple pieces of wood and one of them has a hinge on it. So when you when you mm. like whip it, it, it the 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 one with the hinge flies out and then smacks it. I I would wager to guess that that's not how it was used in the Renaissance. Maybe it had some other invention. So maybe there is some truth to the claim that uh, maybe John Rich didn't invent it, but just upgraded it. Yeah, someone nef- definitely needs to do a PhD thesis on the slapstick, I think, and, and find <laughs> the us the answer. <laughs> I earned my PhD from the slapstick. Okay. I'd do that. <laughs> <laughs> so one thing we can be sure about is that Rich developed what became known as the Harlequinade. It's a specific comedy chase scene yes. telling the story of Harlequin and the lover Columbine and how they're kept apart by Pantalone and, and his servant. Mm-hmm. Uh, he made this sequence his own. He expanded it so it became the main entertainment of the main part of an entertainment at the theater in the evening. And again, it was all mimed and to music with lots of slapstick and acrobatics. But Rich didn't have it all to himself. At the opposing Drury Lane Theatre, the actor-manager David Garrick provided, oh. proved again what an innovator he was by introducing mm-hmm. a speaking Harlequin. Hello. He actually did that classic thing. He engaged Rich's pupil and best actor, Henry Woodward, oh. uh, to write some new stories for him. <laughs> and some of which, guess what, used old English folk stories like Dick Whittington and Robin uh-huh. Hood and Babes in the Wood. Look at that. So here we get the mix starting to happen of English theatre creating what would become, in the end, pantomime. Ah, amazing. The stories were added to with topical and local satire, but by this time there was still a restriction on the amount of spoken word that plays could include. Mm. And this is just... I can't can't get my head around this. (laughs) It's so (laughs) crazy that you have a restriction that says, well, it's a play, you're, you're acting in a play, but you can only... You have to sing and dance, you can't speak very much. Which Wait, is essentially what the law said. About what time was this restrictive law? Uh, going this on? is the 1737 Licensing Act. Huh. Okay. And that act gave the Lord Chamberlain, uh, who was a member of the government, the right to approve all new plays and he could force edits or ban plays outright 
And he could do that without giving any explanation whatsoever. Well, I'm trying to piece it together here. That 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 sounds to me like a direct reaction to uh, 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 the comedies of manners, and uh, you know, like she stoops to conquer and everything like that. Where it's it, 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 we're getting into a more uh, back to uh, the pendulum swinging back into a little bit uh, of hey, we're really really moral people, and we don't want to see uh, naughtiness on stage. <laughs> my first thought when you said there was a restricted law on how many words it's just somebody who's like you know what the theater is getting too talky let's let's wrap it up guys let's wrap it up but now it's like if i limit the number of words that they can say uh then maybe they're not going to spend so much time uh talking about a man chasing a woman and trying to get under her skirt. well as you know those powers existed until the 1960s in yeah. england uh, yes and boy then did the pendulum swing the other way uh, yeah. quite quite significantly <laughs> yeah so yep. the theatres that were allowed to to use spoken drama were called patent theatres. Uh, there was only two of them in London, the Drury Lane Theatre and the Covent Garden Theatre. Mm -hmm. And the other theatres, they had to rely on sung or mimed and shorter entertainments. Really? The rules were changed over the years in, yeah. in small increments. Uh, there was an act in 1788 that gave local magistrates the power to allow limited runs of up to 60 days of spoken drama in other theatres. And the law was then updated again in 1843. So the Lord Chamberlain could only prevent plays from being staged if, in his opinion, and I quote, it is fitting for the preservation of good manners, decorum, or of the public peace to do so. Oh. Still pretty powerful. You know what I'm hearing of this is, you know, when you put, when you put things out there like that, you were, you, you were creating your own enemy. You know, and I'm hearing there are these smaller theaters that could only do uh, song and dance and uh, they're working very, very hard. They've got a lot of, you know, big movements in there. And what they probably did here was uh, originate, at least in in, in uh, England, uh, the idea of burlesque houses. <laughs> yes, exactly right. And that's the weird thing. <laughs> this this law then allowed a, more theater, more venues to be used as theaters or as music halls, mm -hmm. which then led people to creating venues that were attached to public houses. Yes. I mean, that sounds like oh. a really good combination for controlling the public, doesn't it? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> Oh man! Oh, I love it. And and then and then you they develop into speakeasies where it's private clubs, and you can only yeah. get in if you know the the password. And you know they have no idea that the authorities have no idea that it's going on behind these closed doors, but it's going on, and everybody's seeing it. I mean, it's that is the funniest thing to me about censorship. I mean, the 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 further you censor things, the the more people are like the more effort people are going to put into getting that content yeah that's that in itself has given us some interesting things to talk about so far hasn't yeah, it? Right. <laughs> but hey we're talking about pantos family entertainment okay <laughs> yes and the panto did move on as well in in that era when those law changes were going on the actor jovis joseph grimaldi uh was mm. doing his stuff um, he's not as Italian as he sounds. He's a kind of a third generation um, Italian uh, living in London. Uh, he played Mother Goose in Covent Garden Theatre. And from mm. that point on, he played it as a clown rather than as Harlequin. And from that point on, really, Harlequin disappears from the pantomime as such. Oh. He becomes a clown figure rather than this specific comedia figure. Oh, okay. Okay. So, and then at about the same time, slightly later, another factor that contributed to the growth of pantomime was the ability of theatres to generate stage effects and lavish scenery and scenic decorations. Right, right, in the yeah. 1820s, 1830s, that all really improved. Mm -hmm. So now characters could disappear in a flash or be seen to fly across the stage. Fairies and other mystic creatures could appear mm -hmm. and imaginary landscapes that really look quite realistic could be created. That's all pretty useful when you're telling a fairy tale type of story. Oh, and that's fascinating to me because, yeah, we're getting, I mean, it's moving slowly. The pendulum is going much towards a, a elements of realism. But as technology advanced so much everywhere, like 
demand for realism on stage became so much more of a thing. And it's so funny that it is yeah. for fantastical uh, stories like this. That's interesting yeah. to me. So you've got that happening. You've got more language coming into the plays. So jokes and puns and wordplay and the audience participation element really gets added about ah, at the yeah. same time. So they, they still do mime and they still have daring chase scenes and spectacular transformations and stuff like that. Oh, yeah. But the plays are getting more verbal. The pantomimes are getting more verbal. Mm -hmm. So by this time, and favorite fairy tale characters, magical animals, principal boys, all of that stuff going on, um, and the pantomime dame, of course. The pantomimes combined nonsense tales with social satire, commenting on current and social events and innovations. They were always quite topical. In that sense, the modern panto really is the inheritor of these Victorian traditions. I think there are not too many fundamental differences between a Victorian pantomime and what we've got now. Let me let me stop you here for just a second because, uh, and maybe you're going to cover this in just a moment. You can let me know. But when I saw that Cinderella panto, I kind of went, "Wait a minute, this doesn't have anything to do with Cinderella at all." I mean, it's kind of the characters, and we're watching some scenes behind the scenes, like like you were saying, we're we're trying to bake a cake and flour is going everywhere, and we're throwing flour out in the house, and people go away with flour on them, um, and uh, which is terrifying to me now in our you know gluten free world. Uh, but um, uh, uh, when I heard that uh, Ian McKellen was going to be the Widow Twanky in, in Aladdin, I went, that's not a character in Aladdin. What is going on here? <laughs> so to me, it sounds like we're taking a popular title that you know, and we're going to tell a, a completely different story. But you just know that when you come, you're going to expect this type of a story, regardless if it's about Aladdin, uh, you, you know, um, getting the genie in the bottle and no, no, whatever. No, absolutely yeah. right. These these set pieces are really woven into whichever tale where we happen to be going to see this year. And you could you could say right. it doesn't yeah. make too much difference which which one you're going to see. You know there are points of this where you are going to see the things you expect to see. And I will mention a couple of right. those coming up okay. uh, in addition to the ones we've already talked about. But you can see now how that's really okay. come out of several traditions. Arguably the Commedia dell'arte, definitely the um, mm -hmm. Victorian plays and playlets based on fairy tales and the like. And I'm fascinated that it's topical. So uh, help me out here. I mean, is there a, a point where, you know, you'll have the widow Twanky um, being seduced by like a Boris Johnson character or something like that? Like a, a big buffooned, like, I mean, he had the worst hair uh, ever and, you know, uh, always so, Well, had... yes and no. Yep. I mean, okay. the children's pantomime may not go that far. We do have an adult version of oh, pantomimes okay. where there's maybe one or two of those put on and they obviously they make the jokes uh, blue and uh, definitely an adult show. Got it. Okay. So those might be more that would have a direct caricature. But I, uh, for instance, one of the jokes that uh, I found from a recent pantomime was Widow Twanky saying, this is my Brexit dress. Everybody wants me out of it, but once it happens, they're not so sure. <laughs> So that would be the typical sort of topical joke that the adults would understand oh, and the man. kids might laugh at the getting out of a dress bit, but right. not really right. understand the context. Oh, that. that is well crafted. I love it. So the extravagance of pantomimes, they really they kept getting bigger and bigger, particularly in the London shows uh, through the 1800s. The shows in London could last up to five hours five. with expansive sets, clever stage tricks, costumes, and the interweaving of popular songs into the traditional stories. Wow. They often featured large choruses, so cast numbers could be really big. Lighting became used for stage effects as gaslight was introduced in the London theatres in 1817. Oh, yes, yes. And then electric lights at the Savoy Theatre in 1881. Mm -hmm. And they really made good use of this new ability to do effects and uh, that kind of thing. Oh, yeah. I'm sure it's a bit. That's kind of a bit of theatre history that that needs us is a subject of its own, all of its own. Oh yeah, well. lighting, oh uh, and, lighting and, and spectacle. Effects. Yes, absolutely. Yes, and of course, hydraulic machinery came in about the same time as well. Oh yes, um, and this uh, there was a large. They, they suddenly needed a, a large number of stage hands with different skills. It wasn't pulling ropes anymore. More, it was managing <laughs> machines that right. did things, you know, and sometimes didn't do them. Of course, when they went when they went wrong. Oof. And it's about that time, so the, the late 1800s, 
that we get the Christmas connection. <laughs> Theatre started to schedule pantomime to run from Boxing Day until New Year's Day, until the New Year. Mm-hmm. And it soon became a fixed tradition to start uh, the pantomime immediately after Christmas Day. Now, do I need to explain Boxing Day? Uh, I don't really get it, but that's okay. <laughs> yeah, not many people outside of England. No. So it's December the 26th. <laughs> yeah. Um, for yeah. All, the, all the foreign listeners. In the UK and in some other countries, it's a national holiday. The mm. origin of the name is actually comes back, goes back to medieval times mm. when there was a tradition of arms giving on the day after Christmas, and they were given as arms boxes. So we think that's where the name comes from. It, it might be a little later than that, because by the 17th century, that had changed into a tradition of tradesmen collecting a Christmas gift box from their wealthiest customers. Huh. And then even later, servants traditionally who were working in service in, in houses in the Victorian period uh, and Edwardian periods primarily, they were given Boxing Day as a day off Okay, yep. and were given a present by their masters. Mm-hmm. So they that that's the most recent iteration of Boxing Day and, and we've carried on the name from there, really. Absolutely makes sense. So I get a holiday. Everyone else gets to go back to work. It's great. I I I I, I think of it as the uh, uh, the American holiday of December the twenty sixth, which is uh, National Return All of Your Ugly Christmas Gifts Day. <laughs> <laughs> it can take a while. It, it needs. Oh a day. my word! If anybody is listening and never worked retail in the United States, uh, December twenty sixth is one of the worst days of the year because you just have a line out the door of people returning stuff that they don't want. Or these days to, to, to the postal office because <laughs> everyone's bought online. Yes, right. <laughs> so we're nearly done with these these Victorians. Here we go. All right. So there's another popular feature of the Victorian pantomime that carries through, and that is animals. Oh yes, clowns rode on stage on on donkeys. Performing dogs would provide one of the variety acts that kept these shows going for the five hours that they ran for. Shetland ponies were quite common as well, and they're still used in pantomime. If you see a uh, production of Cinderella on any large scale, it'll have ponies pulling the carriage at the end. Wow. And then, of course, there were actors playing animals. Yep. And we get the pantomime horse. (laughs) I'm sure you know what one of those looks Uh, like. Oh, yes, yes. For anyone who doesn't, it's the two actors, one standing upright, doing the head uh, of the horse uh, and the front legs, and one bent double playing the rear end and the rear legs. Mm -hmm. He's, of course, the butt of most of the jokes (laughs) uh, because of his lowly position in the partnership. Uh, But actually, it's quite a skill because the horse often dances, has to be coordinated so it doesn't end up falling flat on its face. And they often have comic tales or goofy eyes which need to be operated right. as well yes so pantomime horse also a very important part of the uh the whole experience wow. love it as all those restrictions were sort of steadily lifted and the variety act of the element of music hall became incorporated into pantomime we can see there were three big trends that come together to make the modern pantomime mm-hmm. often there's a speciality act as part of the show That's going to be someone maybe who's been on Britain's Got Talent recently or some perennial from popular culture. Okay, so like Uh, in the case of my local theatre this year, the big star is a glove puppet (laughs) called Basil Brush. Uh, He was on children's television in the 1970s. Really popular. People still know his catchphrases today. (laughs) So that appeals to the parents and the grandparents. And he's still a comic character for for the kids. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, and other theatres will have a different variation of that kind of thing. A speciality act that appears as part of the show. So it could be like a juggler or a fire eater or something. Okay. Yeah. A few years ago, uh, the Britain's Got Talent one I'm thinking of is there was a lady who had a performing dog and she appeared on many. Um, several pantos i think she might be in one this year completely disconnected to the plot or anything like that here is woman here is woman with dancing dog yeah yeah all just woven in with a bit of yeah i'm wearing a costume similar to yep got it wrenched in a bit and then there's always Mm -hmm. some adult humor that's quite important you've got to keep those chaperoning the children and paying for the tickets entertained but it's got to be pitched so that it goes over the young kids heads oh there's lots of puns Double entendres, uh, and but nothing too blue, right, as we mentioned right. earlier. Popular culture references that might be aimed at the adults rather than the children. You know, big shows from a few years ago that, or things like that. <laughs> um, most of the jokes are real groaners. I, I do have some examples if you're sure you want to hear them. Oh, please bring it on! I my kids love. Okay, well, 
to hate my dad you. jokes. Okay, good. I did warn you. So there's the the dame said, "Ah, oh, here's Penelope the pony who's got a sore throat. Well, she's a little horse." <laughs> well, boom. Oh. She's currently dating Dennis the donkey. It's a safe and stable relationship. God. And there's a duck who keeps stealing wallets out of pockets. He's a robber ducky. Good God. He's a robber ducky. <laughs> it's all right, though, because the cat ate him. So now, <laughs> so, now, so now the cat is a duck-filled fatty puss. Oh, my God. <laughs> you can imagine oh. the kids having a great time at that, can't you? Duck-filled fatty puss. I, I I have a friend who's looking for his next tattoo, and I think I just figured it out. <laughs> and of course, there's a fair there's a fair bit of uh, sweets being thrown out into the audience. Um, there's uh, oh. usually some sort of little talent competition in the middle of the show where some of the kids are on stage, have to perform something, um, and they you know they get a prize. That kind of thing uh, goes on. Oh, and here's one from a more, maybe from a, one of the more adult pantomimes. Uh, mm-hmm. Why the sea? Why is the sea so angry? Well, you'd be angry too if you had crabs all over your bottom. No. <laughs> You know, Philip, there's been uh, I, I, I love this. It's it's coming out of the clickbait era. You know, if you're on Facebook or social media, uh, something comes up. It's like things that popped up in kids cartoons that only adults understand. And, you know, it's uh, it's like in in the Little Mermaid Disney poster, there is a very phallic uh, building in the castle and people are like. Uh, am I seeing what I'm seeing here? Um, but the one I think uh, I think of immediately that goes completely over kids' heads is in Shrek. The bad guy's name is Lord Farquaad, and if you say that in a British accent, I'm going to let the listeners go ahead and put that in in their heads because yep. that is just one of the funniest things to me ever. And really, the kids just hear a a a, a mean little character, and he's got a funny name. So that is exactly what this is coming out of. The, yep. Yeah, I, that is a panto joke. Pretty pretty square one. Yep. And like all those good Victorians, we also have a good sing-along at the panto as well. Oh, yeah. Uh, back in the day, that would have been, you know, musical songs, but now it's Christmas carols, a current pop song that might have been, again, wrenched into the script a little bit maybe. <laughs> um, and at the finale, mate, you know, usually there's the dame with uh, leading a sing-along and the words will be up on the screen, so absolutely nobody's got an excuse not to join in. Right. That's the important thing. It's the joining in. Uh, yes. And the I'm, I've left the best to last. The very best-known bit of pantomime is some mm. piece of audience participa- participation. Oh. This is really the best example. Uh, yes. You get this a variation on the theme, whatever panto you go to. The main good character establishes something that needs to be taken care of, some food or some money or or something that's intrinsic to the plot. Mm -hmm. And he asks the audience to warn him if anyone approaches the item which he's placed on one end of the stage. Mm -hmm. So very soon, of course, whichever evil character it is, comes in, does just that, goes for it. But for all the shouting of the audience, there's a misunderstanding about the warning. And the good character really doesn't get what they mean. Yeah. And there's a whole load of toing and throwing. Usually ends with the audience shouting out, he's behind you. Mm-hmm. To which Jack or Aladdin or whoever responds, oh, no, he isn't. And then we get, oh, yes, he is. And it goes on for as long as they care to keep it going. <laughs> and that thing, it is so part of it's become a real colloquialism so if you say something in normal conversation and include oh no he isn't or oh yes he is everybody knows that you're referring to christmas pantomime <laughs> and they'll they'll get what you mean it's a, a very english thing right but that's that's one of those great like woven in cultural understandings that you know, yeah. I you could be having an argument with your loved one over something, and then one of those comes out and you're like, "Oh no, you didn't!" Oh yes, I did, and then you just go, exactly. "Oh, that reminds me of when we went to the Panto last year." Ah, okay, I feel better. That's great. <laughs> but I am going to go back to the Victorians just to finish up. Oh, yeah, just to finish the Victorian story. By the turn of the 19th century, the Victorian era was coming to an end. 
pantomime reached its real zenith. And by 1900, sorry, in 1900, there was a production of Sleeping Beauty and the Beast at the Drury Lane Theatre. It was the most lavish pantomime ever produced at the theatre, and that theatre was famous for its extravagant productions. Mm. Uh, You've probably guessed it's a combined combination yeah. of Beauty and the Beast and Sleeping Beauty. <laughs> uh, it included double the number of scenes right. that a pantomime <laughs> usually included, and double the number of locations, <laughs> and double the number of effects. In fact, the finale was a really grand transformation uh. of the whole stage uh, with several fountains on stage. What? It was designed by this guy called Bruce Sensation Smith, <laughs> who was a, apparently a really famous Victorian designer. I am going to definitely have to dig into oh, his story. Goodness. He sounds great. Can um, I do sensation? Sensation is my middle name. God. <laughs> now, at the time, it was said that Drury Lane Theatre regularly spent £10,000 on their pantomime production, wow. which is well, well over a million pounds oh, by today's money. My God. Which is interesting, really, isn't it? Because if we talk about spending a million pounds on dollars on Broadway or in the West End, yeah. that's not that unusual for a production these days. Mm -hmm. Which So it rather suggests to me that they were spending somewhat less than we do on theatre um, for the standard plays. Um, and the, the pantomimes were still the most expensive thing that they produced. But maybe only because they were producing so many sets and effects and the kind of thing that we do and take for granted in the theatre yeah. these days. Yeah. You know, I, I, I hit on that in one of my episodes, I, uh, the, my episode number three on the deuce, when I talk about when Disney kind of saved Broadway from becoming just this uh, den of vice. Yeah, one of your best. Uh, thank you. Um, I, I talk about how we're in a stage in, in Broadway right now where, um, you know, the idea of putting something out uh, on, on Broadway, you're not you're not looking for it to have a long, well, I mean, you always are looking for it to have a long running time on Broadway, but the success of any kind of popular play is how it will be performed again for the next many, many years to come. Uh, so you have to make it to a point where it can be done by a smaller company. And mm. I had so many people, um, the, the Disney, uh, stage adaptation of their movie frozen uh did an out-of-town tryout in denver so that's only like five hours away from me and i had a lot of people that i knew go to see that and they were just taken aback by the spectacle of the whole thing it's a big huge fat show and but i started to hear about that and i went how can any smaller company besides Disney actually put something out like that. How did they expect anybody to even try to get close to the grandeur and the spectacle? Well, it's like, yeah, I mean, on Broadway, you're, you're expecting that when you see it at your local regional theater, maybe it's a little watered down, but a community theater, heck no, heck no. They're not going to be no able chance. to do that. So the, I, I, at least I hear with Pantos, I, li I like to see that maybe they've reached a, a, a glass ceiling where they're like, you know, if we go past this, uh, we're we're not going to make our money back. <laughs> you know? The way they run now, they have the limited run. Mm -hmm. um, so they know they're, they're only going to fill so many seats or have to. Right. But also there's a lot of reuse of, of scenery and costumes and that kind yeah, of thing. Yeah, as yeah, well, yeah, of yeah. Of course, because they're, they're pretty similar most of the time. And I haven't even mentioned all the amateur productions that go on. There are many, right. many amateur productions in village halls and and what what have you, you know, all over the place. It's a really popular thing to do at Christmas for the amateur societies as well. Right. I'm going to finish with one more quote from the Victorians because I really love this. Talking yeah. about though that most the most lavish pantomime ever put on at the Drury Lane Theatre uh, in 1900. This is from the Star newspaper, and the critic there said. The Drury Lane pantomime is a symbol of our nation. It is the biggest thing of its kind in the world. It is a prodigal of money, of invention, of splendour, of men and women. But it is without the sense of beauty or the restraining influence of taste. It is impossible to sit in the theatre for five hours without being filled with weary admiration. Only a great nation could have done such a thing. Only... An undisciplined nation could have done it. <laughs> the monstrous, glittering thing of pomp and humour is without order or design. It is a hodgepodge of everything that has, that has been seen on any stage. And I just think that sums up the Victorians wow. so beautifully. Wow. 
So just I, love those Victorians. I'll tell a short story here. Um, I, uh, I just took my family uh, to uh, Las Vegas in August of this year. And um, I hadn't been for about 20 years. And so a lot of things had changed, but some of the stuff had, had stayed the same. And I remember uh, one year I stayed at the Luxor. So for those of you who don't know, it's yeah. the big pyramid shaped one. It's all Egyptian theme. They have a Sphinx and all this. And, and, um, and it's, it, for a while, it was one of the two man-made structures that could be seen from space because it has this great uh, light that shines right out of the peak of the the pyramid. Um, and I always thought it was very cool. And like this is, it was a very neat era in the late '90s, early 2000s when they were just trying to recreate architectural things in Vegas. So when I took my family there, we go to uh, we we get down on the end of the strip that the Luxor is on, and I look up at the thing and emblazoned all over the face of the Luxor because it's just glass walls uh, for the pyramid is the logo for America's Got Talent <laughs> because they have the live show there now, and oh. and I went no. <laughs> <laughs> it's just like uh in america like uh going to the washington monument and uh, expecting to see a big decal up on the side of it said brought to you by doritos you know <laughs> but at the same time i'm like well it's vegas they're trying to sell whatever they can and so i yeah, guess absolutely. i guess uh you know the luxor has had its run as a blank canvas so we're gonna put this huge painting on ugh, ugh. anyway <laughs> but that that's fascinating. I mean, like that is the absolute commentary on what British society was is you could say, this is what we're spending our money on. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yet the, it was the most popular thing as well. It's, oh, absolutely. Uh, yeah. Yep. They, they, they were a conflicted bunch. The yeah. Well, I, I, I love that fact and that idea that I'm going to bring it up again. Like, um, in the in its earliest days, more people voted for American Idol than they did in the U.S. presidential election. <laughs> so you can see where people's uh, preferences were. Um, yeah. it, it, that's always amazing to me how how you can actually stir somebody's heart is actually going to be what they put their priorities towards. Yeah, absolutely. Hmm. We've, we've got just a few minutes. Let me just finish off the story sure, for you go in for one it. last paragraph. Yep. So since Victorian times, Panto's been a feature of British Christmases. The shows got less extravagant in the 20th century and radio and then television stars took over from the traditional pantomime players and the music hall performers mm-hmm. as the draw for an ever-renewing audience. Most recently, Panto is not without its controversies. There's a lot of concern about the stereotypical nature of the portrayal of foreign characters and if they should be portrayed by actors of the appropriate heritage. Uh, Yes. The role of the dame and the nature of of the humour has also been disliked by some. It's also wrapped up in that whole discussion about the nature and value of fairy tales in modern society. Mm -hmm. But for all of those important discussions, it still remains a very popular form of theatre. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, it's funny how that is going over so many lines of theater right now as well. Like, I I love this this chat we're all having right now about what is appropriate for certain roles like like, okay, here's here's a discussion. Like, is it only LGBTQ characters can be played by LGBTQ people? or Mm -hmm. stuff like that. I had, it was on my show at some point where I heard about a production that was going to all be about, um, you know, shedding a light on sexual abuse and, and, uh, and, uh, you know, how prevalent it is in today's world, which is very, very unfortunate. Uh, but the casting call said something like only people who have a history of sexual abuse can audition. And, you know that's that's crossing a very very de- delicate line of isn't it if mm-hmm. i sit in the house everybody on that stage is telling me a part of their sexual past that maybe should stay secret 
You know, I mean, they are 100% outing themselves now as somebody who has gone through a serious emotional trauma. And, you know, the fact that they're on stage about it maybe means uh, that it hasn't quite been resolved yet. Um, And speaking of which, uh, I'm just going to do a shameless plug uh, while I'm on that topic. Go back and listen to my episode number 50 on uh, Marilyn Monroe. (laughs) Shameless plugs are allowed. Okay, good. Uh, but yeah, on the same subject, I saw an interesting discussion on Twitter the other day about there's a production of Mrs. Doubtfire, the musical coming yeah. to London. Yep. And there were mm-hmm. some transgender performers saying, you know, it should should be performed by a transgender mm-hmm. person. Um, and there was a lot of vitriol in the conversation. I oh, think I won't God. go into it here, but, uh, you know, it was on both sides of the argument. <clears throat> we find ourselves in uh, such a strange time where just yeah, the... the, the the slightest trip up on social media uh, it gets you canceled. And while some people it's, it's very, it's very well deserved. Others, you just go, I don't know that that was worthy to just forget that person. I mean, look, obviously I think anybody who's right now giving any kind of time to Kanye West is uh, I've deleted him from anything I ever had on iTunes. I don't want to hear that nonsense anymore, but um, you know, you, similarly in popular culture, you have a guy like James Gunn who gave us the Guardians of the Galaxy series. He uh, he's now like the president of the DC universe and is going to completely refurbish that. And I have absolute faith in him. But he got fired from those Guardians movies over a tweet yeah. he had, you know, like in 2009. And then they kind of mm-hmm. went, "Okay, you're not that same person. We can overlook that." Okay. Interesting times. That difficult lines to be drawn in many places and positions there. Right, yeah. right. Really tricky. Yeah. So we've been talking about panto, a mm-hmm. very popular form of theatre here. In wow. fact, it can make for a, for a regional theatre. It can make the difference between an annual profit and a loss. Yeah. The success of panto, it can fill the shortfalls that other less popular productions might leave a hold in the budget. I mean, sadly, in recent years, it's been a real problem. So mm-hmm. when yeah. uh, there was a sudden cancellation of the Christmas season in 2020, which was a real disaster for British theatre. Oh, yeah. So this was after the initial closures as a measure to stem the spread of COVID-19 earlier in the year. Right. Uh, they were allowed to then reopen with social distancing. Now, that was already a bit crazy because a panto... <laughs> where you've only got half the theatre filled and shouting and singing wasn't allowed, was never really going to fly that yeah. well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it did mean the theatres could get open again. Mm-hmm. But then the Omicron variant came along, oh. and very quickly the government had to close down again. Yep. So in early December, theatres were shut again, having invested in the pantomime that they maybe only got a few days' performances out. Oh, that was oh, a real oh, blow to many regional oh. theatres, and and you know their financial woes continue mm. to this day. But yeah. let's end on a happy note. Yeah. Last year and this year, there were open, completely open performances, full houses. People were back in the theatre. Oh. So let's hope that the panto can be part of the recovery of theatre here. I well, I'm seeing that just about anywhere though is that. You know, after two years of difficulty and trying to keep a distance and can we gather in large groups again, I see people going to whatever they can, you know, even in difficult economic times that the entire world is going through. Uh, So sorry to get political on here, but if people are thinking that there is one person who has a little uh, uh, panel of knobs in front of him and he is making gas prices higher or he is making things more difficult, it's a little bit more complex than that, I promise you. But, you know, I mean, the entire world is going through difficult economic times right now. Everything costs more and we're seeing some slumps and things. But um, I'm seeing that despite all of that, people are just happy to get out again and they are going to things that they didn't go to before. So I'm I'm seeing some hope. (laughs) Yes, I think we should be hopeful uh, Mm -hmm. because we're theater is hopeful by its nature. Mm -hmm. So which uh, that's and. I, I I mean, just as an example, you can look at the the current slate of what's coming to Broadway within the next year or so. I mean, there are so many different new things that are coming out. Um, uh, I uh, as a preview for my next episode, I get to talk about some like it hot, the fantastic mm. Marilyn Monroe movie, um, which is now a Broadway musical. Uh, 
And yeah. I, I'm thinking of doing some sort of uh, marketing to talk about this, but the Some Like It Hot musical has a African-American actor in the role of Sugar. So, you know, where you're going to, ex- you're going and expecting, okay, who's going to be the uh, perky, bubbly blonde? It's like, no, they're telling this in a totally different format. She's a jazz singer in the 40s. And and I went, God, what a brilliant way to do that and address some of the very difficult things in that production. Um, but, oh, man, and, you know, we're getting revivals, but we're also getting a lot of really cool new works that are coming. And that's the thing that I like to see on on Broadway is when a producer will give something new a shot. And they've had enough time now to reinvigorate the Broadway economy that they can start taking risks on new stuff again. And maybe they'll get that new cats. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe (laughs) careful what you wish for. Yeah. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Lovely. There you go. Then anyway, I've, I've nothing more to say on pantomime. I hope you get Uh, to see one in England one day. Yes, absolutely. And everybody, if you, uh, if you uh, haven't bought your tickets yet, go get a, a panto ticket wherever you get it. Sounds amazing. Well, that was fun. A very, very big thanks to Aaron for giving up his time to come and talk to me. And if you haven't already, please do find the Euripides Humanities podcast and take your pick from the smorgasbord of historical theatre subjects there. I've put links in the show notes. It just remains for me to wish you a very happy new year, and I'll be back soon for season five of the History of European Theatre podcast. (laughs) 